Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling adventurous. Oh. Because we are meeting an extraordinary curator today who is in his very sort of spirit of who he is, adventurous, I would say. Yes. Um, he has curated some of the most fascinating and inspiring exhibitions all over the world, including one of my favourites, which was the Venice Biennale in 2019. Mm -hmm. But for the past however many years, I think since 2006 maybe, he has been the director at the Hayward Gallery in London and has put on some touching shows that I've seen, like Bridget Riley, Tracy Emin, you know, the list is endless, but mm -hmm. literally some of my favourite shows I've ever seen in London mm -hmm. even. Same. And right now, you and I are thrilled because he's just opened an exhibition of 31 artists called Mixing It Up and it celebrates painting in every form possible right now. It's a kind of overview of all the great painters that are making work right now. That are UK based. Exactly. And you and I love painting and the show that you just put on in Carl Friedman Gallery recently had loads of painting in it and Correct. it's something that has put, sort of bonded us in our friendship so we are very excited to speak about this show today. We would like to welcome to Talk Art... Ralph Rugoff. Well, a great Ralph. welcome. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. You are uh, an OBE, Ralph. Yeah, I try to keep that under the table. For <laughs> well, it's not under the table here. It's a celebration <laughs> on top of the table. It's firmly on the tabletop right now. Congratulations <laughs> on that. What did, what did that feel like to become an OBE for services to the arts? Well, it was great. I mean, I think it's wonderful the way they recognize people for services to culture here. Yes. I mean, I come from the U.S. where you don't get the same kind of support from the government or the same recognition even in, say, uh, media. Mm. Um, I mean, it's incredible in London. You know, you can put on an exhibition and it gets on radio. It might get on television. You get covered by eight different newspapers. Uh, and if you open an exhibition in New York, you might be lucky if you get a review of the New York Times. Right. Wow. So is that why you are here in London, because people here in your accent, obviously you're American, you were born in New York, um, but you've, you've, London seems to be the place that you gravitate towards. Well, I mean, I, you know, I'm really in London because of this job at the Hayward, and that's what brought me over here. But I'd lived here briefly before that. And um, it certainly makes living in London, if you're working in the arts, you know, a completely different kind of experience where you feel that what you do can be much more a part of the larger culture to some extent. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, when I first got over here, before I had the job at the Hayward, it was the late 90s and Tate Modern opened right around 2000. And they did a great thing where they invited all the black cab drivers in London to a pre-VIP preview. So they were the first people who got in the gallery, right? So they all knew where it was. And, you know, at that point in time, thanks to the whole YBA phenomenon, you know, you could talk to most taxi drivers about Tracy Emin or Damien Hurst. Right. So there was this sense that art wasn't something just for, uh, you know, an elite or that it was only meant Vincent van Gogh and, you know, Claude Monet. Mona Lisa. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the Sistine Chapel. If it's not yeah. anything like that, don't bother. What, what, what did they think of it? Do, you know, do, do we know the reviews from these taxi drivers? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they made of it, but they definitely remembered where it was. Yes. But, but that's what you need. That's what you need for the tourists. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had started at the Hayward in 2006, but prior to that, you were based at the Wattis Institute for Contemporary Art in San Francisco from 2000 to 2006. And you actually won a prize there, the Ordway Contemporary Art Centre Prize. Um, yeah, I was a prize for, uh, you could win it either for writing or curating. And they, they gave it to me for both because before I became a curator, I was mainly uh, earning my living as a writer, writing about art and visual culture in general. Um, and uh, the Wattis was a smaller place, but it was wonderful in that we could do what, anything we wanted to do. And uh, a lot of our exhibitions ended up traveling to larger museums and galleries. And so it was kind of an interesting exercise in what a small place, how it could have influence and punch above its weight. Absolutely. But I mean, for San Francisco, it, it was part of like, there's like a holy trinity that you've got San Francisco MoMA and you have the De Young and the Wattis. It feels like there's a really good hub for contemporary art in San Francisco. There is. They really have some great institutions. And in Berkeley, there's the Berkeley Art Museum, which is excellent. And uh, um, for a relatively small city, I mean, we forget how small San Francisco actually is. It's like yeah. half a million people. It's so world famous, right, that we think of yeah. it as being some great big metropolis. But it's actually only the fourth largest city in San Francisco, in California. Oh. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I guess I, I've spent some time in San Francisco. I guess it feels slightly like um, I've always found it to be a place where people gravitate towards where they want to stay and better themselves. Every time I met someone, they would have their day job, and then in the evening they would be doing like stitch craft, or they'd be building baskets, or they'd be like <laughs> it was very crafty, like a retirement village where people would have amazing, these other um, things. There's also an amazing music scene there. I used to yeah, spend exactly. loads of time yeah. doing gigs and stuff. Good music awesome. scene, and obviously they're really into food. Um. But they, yeah, their art, their art is up there. So, so you were awarded for the writing and curating, but something I read about you which I found kind of fascinating is that through your um, not regular schooling system when you was a kid, you didn't read until you were eight. And here you are winning an award for writing years later. I think, yeah, I, I think there's a good argument for not making kids learn how to read until they want to. Right. I was basically shamed into learning how to read because I was the only kid in the class who still couldn't read. Wow. That's what, was that, what was that like for you as a kid? Was it, did, did you find it stressful or was it, was it like you were quite happy that way? I was happy not reading. I was oh, yeah. quite physically active as a kid and I was more interested in kind of running around. Wow. But uh, yeah, suddenly having to learn how to read, there was a little bit of pressure there at that point. Yeah, Amazing. of course. 
When did um, when did the visual arts enter your life? So you, you you were raised in this is Greenwich Village where your school was in New York City. So you were yeah. raised in New York City. When did it? When did the visual arts kind of make a massive impact on you? I think when I was a teenager, and I think probably like a lot of teenagers, one of the first points of entry was surrealism. You know, uh, just this kind of imagery that was unlike anything you'd seen before, that was kind of dreamlike, that, you know, had a little bit to do with science fiction, maybe, you know. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then also I saw uh, two retrospectives at museums, and I don't even know how I went to see them, to tell you the truth, because it wasn't something I did. One was a Joseph Boyce retrospective at the Guggenheim. Oh, wow. Uh, and, it, of course, I had no idea anything like that existed. And then I saw a Francis Bacon show at the Metropolitan, a retrospective. And, you know, Francis Bacon, you don't need to have any education in art to have that stuff just knock you off your feet, right? Mm, right. Uh, he figured out really how to kind of directly get into our nervous system with mm. those images and uh, to really create a strong physical, visceral response to them. Um, so that could be really interesting. But then I was interested in, you know, literature and film for a while. And it was really only at university. I ended up, I went to a university in Rhode Island that was next to an art school. And I ended up making a lot of friends who were in the art school who went on to become artists. And uh, This is RISD, isn't it? The, the, yeah, this is RISD. And for some reason, even when I got out of school, I just ended up making friends with people who are artists. I generally found that artists had much better senses of humor than writers. <laughs> God knows why. I must have been hanging out with the wrong writers. But... Uh, Anyway, so then I studied something at university called semiotics, which is like the system of how communication works. Mm. Um, but, like uh, what they do at uh, airports to get the planes to come in and stuff. Everything, everything yeah. from like, you know, traffic light systems to cinema. You know, what are the signs that tell us that something means something, a certain kind of shock, right? Or... Um, so then, um, and there was a lot of French theory, as it was called generally in those days, right? Uh, and that became very fashionable in art criticism. So people, artist friends of mine who knew I knew this stuff, asked me to write about their work or to help them craft a statement for, a, you know, an exhibition or something. Oh, right. And that's how I got into uh, visual art, was really purely from the personal side of things. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that is, is that not the best way in? I mean, like mine and Rob's route in has been through enthusiasm and passion. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. I think it is. Um, I wouldn't have, yeah, there's no other way I would prefer to have come into it. Though I then found that I had a big gap in my education because I hadn't been studying art history or anything. Right. Yeah, I think we found that as well. It's often <laughs> the way you can have these huge, like, you know you have a huge kind of vast knowledge gap and then suddenly you can just sort of keep reading and eventually you kind of pick it all up don't you i think so i mean i think you know and one of the things i like about my job in the in in this whole area is that i'm constantly learning yes i mean every time you work with a new artist you're learning about a whole new 
language, but also all the things that they've researched because artists are amazing researchers, right? And one of the things that artists are constantly having to do is to teach themselves how to do something because no one else has ever done it. Mm. Um, I mean, we just had a soft opening for an outdoor project at the Hayward on Friday by this German sculptor named Klaus Weber. And it's a waterfall that comes down from a concrete bridge over the Hayward and two sculptural figures that have water that's, flows out of them in different configurations. One's just a pair of legs and it has this kind of peacock fan that wiggles around. And the other one is a female figure in the thinker's pose that doesn't have a head and then water gushes up to create a head, like uh, veins of inspired thought or something. And to figure out how to do this and make the water behave in certain ways, took this guy three years of, of research and working with some water engineers because nobody had tried to do this with water before. And I'm constantly finding artists who are inventing, you know, completely different ways of doing something, sometimes discovering kind of new laws of optics. Mm. I mean, one artist I work with developed a, a film projection with just concentric circles of light. And she created an after image because the colors were complementary colors, but the after image also would move, which is apparently something in the history of perceptual psychology. They never knew that after images could move. Wow. Um, so there's, you know, artists are really, they're experimenting, they're pushing things, they're learning. What do you which, mean the after um, image? Sorry. Which artist is that as well? That was uh, Anne Veronica Janssens, who's a really oh, yes. wonderful yes, uh, yes, yes. Belgian artist who was yeah, in yeah. a, the light show at the Hayward Gallery, which was exactly. about uh, eight years ago. Do you, do you mean like they move like they stay on the retina? You know, if you stare at a flashing light, it stays with you. Or yeah. sometimes you look at them pictures and then you can see Jesus on the ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Or, you know, if you stare at something that's bright green and you close your eyes, you see orange, the complementary color. But now, because she was, she orchestrated these moving circles of kind of complementary colors, you would close your eyes and you would see that same thing happening when your eyes were closed. Uh, so it was a retinal kind of discharge, but it was yeah. all about movement as well as color. Wow. Yeah, you're, well, you're right. That's how the artist is thinking. And you talk about Klaus Weber's work, which you've just opened. It's, uh, it sounds like he's sculpting with water. He's trying to... He's trying to sculpt with water, right? Which is, it sounds like a contradiction in terms. I mean... Yeah. Water is like the most, the opposite of a sculptural material. Yeah. Did this, did this soft opening happen in the rain? Was it raining when this was going <laughs> no, on? No, no, it was a beautiful uh, evening last Friday. Oh, okay, great, 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 yeah. great. I, lo- I love the idea of how um, complicated that was to sort of achieve as an artwork. And yet when you actually see it, the kind of immediacy and the joy and the spontaneity of it, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like almost like the simplicity of the actual result, but how the viewer might never realise all those years mm. of agony and strife. No, it's really true. And I don't think, I think people looking at this just have this immediate response. And like you say, it really is one of surprise and joy because you didn't yes. expect to see a waterfall coming down every day in front of you. No. Um, and I, in general, I think that's the wonderful thing when the complexity is not on the surface, mm. but it's, yeah. it's something you come to later on. 
Yes, buried deep within. Um, so you've obviously worked with many different kinds of artists, like you've just explained. But this new show that you've just opened um, is kind of traditional in its core in the sense of painting being this kind of traditional art form that, you know, many people have often tried to declare it being dead or, um, you know, dull or not interesting or relevant anymore. But to Russell and I, like, we always think painting is one of the most exciting things because, you know, to sit in front of a blank canvas and somehow be able to create your own, you know, universe is such a difficult challenge in a way and also to make it relevant to the contemporary time and your show has 31 artists in it and each of them is so singular and all on their own kind of unique path and I think it's such a brilliant overview of kind of the possibilities of painting and how it can have relevance um, politically and socially and uh, personally to tell different stories. Can you speak a bit about how this show came together because in a way having an overview of painting you know might might seem as a curator um, to be something that you know I think often these days people pressure. want these shows with like you know lights and videos and things moving you know can you speak a bit about what, what, why you chose painting? Well, um, during the, let's see, maybe it was lockdown number two, uh, mm. we, did, we did an outdoor project because we were tired of having the gallery closed. And we were asking people to make portraits of everyday heroes, people who had to keep going to their job, whether it yes. was a, a doctor or whether it was someone, your clerk at your local shop, right? But all those people, we were kind of safe at home who were taking risks. And, you know, this was a time when bus drivers were dying of COVID. Uh, and we researched, um, you know, I looked closely at painting because rather than just having photographic portraits, I thought it'd be more interesting to have a mix. And I just came across some painters, two of them who ended up being in this show, um, Matthew Kershano and Lydia Blakely. Uh, mm -hmm who were painters I hadn't known their work before. I thought it was really interesting. I really enjoyed the different ways they used paint and also the type of content they were using. Um, that was something I think anyone could respond to and have, and it felt very accessible and yet it wasn't simple. Um, mm -hmm. It also in the case of Lydia's work had a sense of humor um, so it got me interested in taking a wider look at painting in the UK. And I think in the UK specifically, because, you know, one, the pandemic meant travel was quite difficult. Two, it also has had a dire impact on our finances. Mm -hmm. So we had to cancel some shows that were just too expensive to do anymore because we weren't getting the audiences in who could pay for them. So we definitely wanted to do a local show, you know, and at the same time, we're also all trying to figure out a future where we can do shows that have less climate impact. Right. So this was a show where you could really just send a truck around the country and pick up everything you needed, bring it back into the gallery. And um, then, uh, you know, I just got deep into doing research and a lot of it I could do on my bicycle because I could just, bicycle all over London. Uh, there were some artists who were outside of London and that was a little more difficult. Uh, some of those did on Zoom. Sometimes I took some train journeys. Um, but there was an amazing group of artists. And, you know, there are probably five of my top 20 painters who aren't even in this show. 
who for one reason or another, they either had another show on at the same time or were about to have another show. Um, And yet there was such a incredible diversity, as you were saying, you know, so many singular, distinctive and different approaches, but all of them really took painting seriously. And they were using the tools you have as a painter to create things that have kind of many different ways of being seen and many different ways you could respond to them. And they used the tools of painting to create something that was really resonantly ambiguous. Nobody wanted to create a simple image that you could digest right away. Everything has layers to it. And almost every artist in the show, uh, when I talked to them, described painting as a conversation. Mm. And part of that is a conversation as a painter you have with your past, the past, the whole history of the medium. And I think more than any other medium, painters are probably conscious of this incredible rich history of painting, you know? Right. Uh, and they make references to it and they learn from it. You know, I think more than any other discipline, painters are the people who go to museums and look at old paintings and try to figure out how somebody achieved a certain effect or did what they did. Mm. But it was also a conversation with all the visual stimuli that's happening in the world today and reflecting on that. But also they were all very intent that it was also a conversation with the viewer, with the person looking at it, that rather than pin down a particular meaning, they kind of liked to create a cocktail of different elements that then you got to interpret and you got to bring your own history to it and your own associations. Um, And so that idea of how meaning gets mixed up in all these different ways and how all these different references end up in a painting. I mean, I think that's one of the great amazing things about painting is it's just this landing pad and things can land there from any possible image source, right? I mean, you know, there are things from fashion magazines, medical manuals, you know, car mags, history, the history of painting, politics, family photo albums, all this kind of stuff can end up in the same canvas. Mm. Um, And then I think there's a basic magic of painting. I mean, Peter Doig, who's probably one of the best known artists in the show, you know, talks about how when you get closer to a painting, it can seem to disappear. Right, it just dissolves into these abstract marks. Yes. And this phenomenon, I think, that when we look at a painting, we see an image, we have an emotional response to it. It affects us physically in different ways, depending on the colors and whether it shows something that seems chaotic or orderly, calming. Um, But at the same time, you can get up close and realize this is just some pigment smeared across the surface. Yeah. Right. And your brain is constantly balancing these two things and going back and forth. And that is a really interesting experience. It'd be like listening to somebody speak, but also hearing their words at the same time is just abstract music. Mm-hmm. Right. It's getting your left and your right brains activated at the same time. Yeah. And that's a really rich experience that we don't get that much from other media. 
You know, it's really interesting because you mentioned the everyday heroes um, installations that you did on the kind of billboards almost on the exterior of the building when, when it was closed to the public. And there was a painting that ended up in, in Russell's group show here in Margate by Benjamin Senior called The Grocery oh, Store, which was painting. a masked, um, yeah, working kind of guy at a grocery store, you know, giving you the groceries. And um, I remember when I first saw it and it was this masked figure and there was something so brilliant about the way that the Hayward decided or you and you know your curators decided to to sort of put these painted images and I know there were other kinds of work the commissions well, but, aren't they since yeah, 2016 they were yeah, they were. exactly but I, I loved the way that even though you couldn't get into the museum you could still see a painting like the you know even though it wasn't the physical painting but and 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 the kind of hope it gives you know it's a kind of really generous act in a way to remind people that you can create something from nothing and that you know at the worst time in crisis that you still have hope you know you can sit at your kitchen table and make something you know there was something so strong about it and so relevant to the moment and that's why I think mixing it up this new show is so important because it kind of reminds us all you know the importance of of actual creativity and skill and talent but ideas as well. Yeah, that was a great painting by Benjamin. And of course, what's incredible is when you see the actual painting, it's about the size of a computer screen. Yes, it's tiny. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you blew it up on these 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 Waterloo billboard commissions, which you started in 2016, which kind of reminded me slightly of, I don't know if it's an homage at all, but the High Line in New York, when you come to the end of the High Line, when you get to the Whitney, there's always like this billboard yes. commission at the end, which over the years I always go and check out and see what's up there. You've taken me there. Yeah. yeah. No, the Hayward commissioning goes back even before my time to a show in 2005 when there was a really nice image by Paolo Peavy of a donkey standing on a boat in the middle of like a lake. No text, nothing, right? So you're looking at this as you're walking across Waterloo Bridge. You don't know whether it's an advertisement of some kind <laughs> or what it is. Um and so we actually call that spot the Donkey Banner ever since. The Donkey Banner. The donkey banner. Oh, I love that. I'm writing yeah. that down. Um, it's yeah, it's an, it's an incredible um, achievement, and it's a regular, it's a rotating image. Yeah, I mean the everyday heroes. We actually branched out and covered the entire Royal Festival Hall with images. Um, which had never wasn't something we'd done before, and it turns out the Royal Festival Hall makes a great gallery. Yeah. yeah, well, it's part of the the South Bank Centre. So, yeah. for people who don't know, this is an area on the South Bank of London, and the Hayward forms one of multiple buildings where there is like a cross disciplinary program, which, in some ways, I guess, is an asset to the Hayward Gallery itself because you have so many people coming for so many different reasons to the South Bank Centre. Yes, no, we get. Um, all kinds of audiences, and I was there myself on Saturday night for an incredible film by Jeremy Deller and the choreography choreographer Holly Blakely. Yeah, uh, incredible film with a live accompaniment by a five-person kind of experimental jazz band. Yeah, and that kind of coming together of different art forms is is really exciting. And apparently, the the dance was totally um, unrehearsed. And it was kind of in, in response to the moment, no? Well, improv was it? The, the music was. Oh, the music was. Yeah. The music was improv. They were they were looking at the screen and basically making it up in response to what wow. the dancers were doing. Oh my so god! Good. Yeah, but they did it brilliantly. 
Wow. Well, this, so this mixing it up show, you were talking about Lydia's work and Matthew's work. They actually sit alongside each other. But for me, when I was walking around, I felt incredibly proud because there are so many former talk art guests that yeah. are, are hanging up there. We have Rose Wiley in <laughs> oh, conversation right. with Alvaro Barrington. There's Denzel Forrester downstairs with Caroline Kuhn, Labena Hamid, Samaya Critchlow, Jade Fadajatimi. So, and I was walking around going like, wow, yep, those are them. all people you've had on your show. All people yeah. that we've had on talk art. There's also and, future guests because I think Sophie von Hellerman's coming on. So von Hellerman's coming and it's it's an it's such an incredible um overview of what is happening right now in and the best of painting well there's i mean rose wiley is is sort of the grand dame of the show right she's in her mid 80s and it's really interesting two of the younger artists in the show uh are huge i mean a lot of them are huge fans of hers but in particular right where she is positioned one of the paintings of Rose in the show we borrowed from Oscar Murillo, who's in the room next door. And then she was in the room with Alvaro Barrington. Alvaro loves her work and was actually kind of slightly worried about being in a room. I mean, he was thrilled to be in a room with her, but he also said every time he's ever seen her in a group show, she's stolen the show. It's true. So, so Alvaro went all out. And did some amazing paintings with giant concrete brutalist frames, which yeah, are unlike anything I've ever seen. I was going to ask you about those because that's like my favorite tunnels. thing in the show. Yeah, they're yeah. With carpet, painted Love carpets it. at the end. Yeah, but then he, he also made this about three meter high rose painted with concrete on a green wood background. A rose for rose. And I thought that was so moving. I've never known an artist to make a work for another artist they were showing with out of respect. And uh, for your show as well. What's that? But for your show, you know, this is, these are artists that are responding to you asking them to be a part of this show. Yeah. But just saying, okay, I'm going to be next to Rose. I'm going to show her how much I appreciate her work with a new work just for her. Uh, And it's a really lovely piece. Um, but I think one thing that was exciting to discover was, you know, there's a whole generation still in their 20s mm-hmm. who are making amazing work. Uh, and just on that floor alone, there's Jade, there's Rachel. Rachel Jones, Jones for me, is amazing. a superstar. And she, this Rachel. is another artist and that Jade. responded in oh. such an incredible way to the show is that you went to Rachel and said, there is a seven meter wall here. Can you create something? And what did Rachel make? She yes. made a seven-meter work. Yes, she actually made it a little longer than seven meters, but luckily we had a different wall we could switch it to. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it's a work that's just this incredible explosion of vivid color, right? Swirling, taking your eye on this amazing trip as it skitters and stutters all over these super saturated colors that she puts on directly with an oil stick. And, you know, Rachel is someone who really says that she wants you to feel color with your whole body. And you do. And then at a certain point, you realize, oh, my God, this is not an abstract painting. There's a row of teeth there. And this is a real incredible moment. I love to take people through the show because they're looking at it and they're just appreciating the play of color and form. And then when they see the teeth, it's like, you know, the penny finally drops. And, you know, Rachel's very interested in uh, how in the representation of black bodies in history is the role that teeth have played. 
from the times of slavery, when teeth were inspected, to the way contemporary stars are putting grills on their teeth, and teeth have taken on a whole other meaning. Uh, and that kind of mixing it up, mixing up something abstract and something figurative is something that's constantly recurring throughout the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And I think, you know, I think we're past that point of these categories in a way, like abstraction and figuration. I mean, another artist on that floor is Daniel Sinsel, who is a beautiful, incredible painter who paints these kind of almost retro-futurist visions of things that you can identify a ribbon, but it's completely abstract in terms he of He painted um, My Bum. There's oh, a yes. painting by Daniel Sinsel, <laughs> My Bum, with a hazelnut going through the top of my thigh and one of my bum cheeks. If anyone ever sees that, you can Google it. It's actually, I actually modelled for the bum in that really? painting. Someone somewhere in the world has got my ass in their living room. That's incredible. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you know Daniel's work, and he will yeah. include real objects in it, like that hazelnut. One of the paintings yeah. in the show has a rope, a physical rope in it. But when a lot of people just see it out of the corner of their eye and think it's a line on a canvas, it's amazing. Yeah. So this idea of what's abstract, what's, you know, there are lots of figurative paintings that have passages that are incredibly abstract. Um, but I think what painting is really about is about making references to things. I mean, abstract artists like Kandinsky were referencing emotional and spiritual states. You could look at an early Bridget Riley black and white geometric abstraction, right, that makes your, totally does your eyeballs in. And, you know, depending on how you're feeling, it could be re re referencing anxiety or referencing excitement. Mm -hmm. uh, it's something really destabilizing because it's always changing. So whether it's a figurative painting or an abstract painting, I don't think is that meaningful. It's how a painting is making references. And Peter Doig actually, again, said an interesting thing. Someone was asking him about his paintings of Trinidad because he's lived off and on in Trinidad for the last 20 years or so. And he said, look, my paintings aren't about Trinidad. You know, I use the place as a portal to exploring different possibilities in painting. So that idea that, you know, what these artists are showing you is not so much an image of something as so much as an image that represents a way of thinking, a way of processing information, visual information, 
Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting, Leonardo called painting, uh, my Italian is not very good, but a cosa mentale, like a mental thing. And for years, you know, this came from people like Marcel Duchamp, who talked about the stupidity of painters and who famously gave up painting to really become the, the first conceptual artist in history. But there was a sense that painters, it wasn't a mental thing. And yet it completely is. And I think these artists show you that you can have really rich, technically interesting, skilled images that are also really brainy and thoughtful. Yes. yes. You know, um, because I think one of the part of the periodical moments that we enter into where everyone says painting's dead, which is really as dumb as saying sculpture is dead. Yeah. Or photography is dead, right? I mean, the mediums don't die. Um, but what we ended up with was a school of conceptual painting, painters who just make a painting about the fact that painting is can't do anything interesting anymore, uh, that painting can only be about a reproduction. It can't be original. And a lot of that work has a huge market. Some of the painters who are part of this conceptual school of painting, you know, have been incredibly successful. But to me, their work is sort of a dead end because uh, they've really basically given up on the idea that painting can do anything interesting except comment on its own futility. Mm. So that's why this show, I think, is hopeful. And it's just that all these people finding ways to keep making really interesting explorations. Yeah. I mean, the person that really comes to mind right now is Caroline Kuhn, because Caroline's painting really stands out in your show because of its kind of meticulous um, kind of skill, but also the political kind of ideas behind it all and the kind of idea of the male and female within each of us and just, and you know, just the kind of fantastical sport level of it as well, you, you know what I mean? Like the, the compositions that she has. But I love her kind of rigorous intellectual pursuit that she's, you know, been on for the last 50 years. You know, she's so focused, so intellectual, reads every day, you know, as well as paints every day. And I mean, how did you come across her work? Was that via Peter as well? Because I know Peter Doig's been a big supporter of hers. That was through Peter. And, you know, I mean, um, there's sort of a, a group of people who are some relationship with Peter. He taught Herbert Anderson. Yes, uh, I love he also well. was one of the people who kind of helped Denzel Forrester get attention again. Mm -mm. Uh, and Denzel's, you know, such an amazing painter. And, uh, you know, it's, I think so many of these artists are so experimental in how they do things. Mm. Right. Even, um, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, you look at what Alvaro is doing upstairs, but in the next room is Merlin James, who I think is one of the great underappreciated, in a sense, painters in the UK, uh, who's so experimental, mm. uh, constantly playing with the medium. I mean, there's one painting up there where he's basically turned the canvas around. So you're looking at the back of it. And he's put a few daubs of paint on a scrim, put a few little wooden houses, 
on the stretcher bars, and he's created this amazing landscape that's three-dimensional. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, I think that is definitely something that marks a lot of these painters, is they really are, well, I go back to that word adventurous. Absolutely. Yeah, they're I taking think- chances. It's an, it's an incredible show, and I mean, it's it's one of many incredible shows that you've done. Some of the best Rob was saying in instruction that we've seen. I mean, the George Condo show for me was a game changer. David Shrigley's Bridget Riley, Diane Arbus, Pippa Lottie Wrist, the Kiss My Gender show, which was on, which was an incredible show, which I absolutely love. There's been so many, but something that uh, we said about you in the introduction, which was that you got asked to be the curator for the director's show at the Venice Biennale the 58th year in 2019. Um, And, you know, the Venice Biennale is sometimes referred to as the Art World Olympics. And that was quite a big feat. But I would love to go quite layman on this because we we haven't really talked about it. Venice comes up a lot in conversations, but we haven't actually talked to someone who's curated the director's show, which is also the centrepiece of the Biennale every two years. Biennale meaning every two years. But if we can go layman on it for listeners who don't really understand the importance of Venice, why Venice matters. Can we talk to you about that? Gee, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I probably, it's hard to say why Venice matters as much as it does. Mm. Sometimes I think maybe it really doesn't matter that much. Now you've done the job. Now, you, now, now you've got that out of the way. Pretend it matters a great deal. Um, <laughs> You know, it's the oldest, it's the mother of all the Biennales, right? It started in the late 19th century. And it's the one, the only one that has permanent pavilions for about 60 different countries from around the world. And there's another 30 or 40 countries that regularly come who don't have a permanent pavilion. So it's, it's the biggest gathering of international art in the world. And of course, it's in Venice. If this was in Boise, Idaho, I doubt it would have the same appeal. <laughs> but why Venice? Why did Venice become this place for it? You know, it's really interesting. It was really like a civic initiative to draw tourism. And you could think, why would Venice be trying to draw tourists? It was already one of the biggest tourist spots in the world. Yeah. Um, but I think there was some desire to make Venice not just a place where people went to look at things from the past, but that had a contemporary connection. Right. And, you know, somehow all the countries jumped on board and, you know, said, okay, we're going to participate in this. You know, a lot of these things, there are lots of biennials that come on for five or six iterations and then they fade away. Mm. Venice somehow had staying power. And I think it is because this is, you know, one of the world's, the whole city is a work of art. Exactly. Right. And it's so rich in its history. Yeah. It's like the tapestry of all of that. And then just the experience and the food and like the atmosphere of being there. Yeah. And you can like, you know, stay out. You, you sort of plan to go home at midnight and you actually go home at four in the morning because you keep bumping into people. It's like it becomes a kind of ad, like an adventure, adventure in itself, yeah. doesn't it? And yeah. at that point, of course, you can't find your way home because it's an impossible no. <laughs> city to find your way through. And you have to swim. And then, yeah. Or you have to take your <laughs> shoes off. Yeah, I've done that many times. You take your shoes take off. Take your heels off. Yeah. So oh. it's... So what happens to all the places? So everyone, countries have permanent positions there for the Biennale. So obviously it's every two years. So what happens to these buildings when they're not being used for the art fair? Uh, every other year, there's an architectural 
Biennale. Right. And they really just get used for those two events. And, you know, each one lasts for six months. So then they're empty for four or five months until the next installation happens. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think people used to look at Venice as a place where some current trends in the international art world would get summed up. But I think now we're at a moment in time when there's so many different things happening in so many countries and where art really became contemporary art, completely international, you know, mm. almost anywhere in the world you can go mm. and find contemporary artists working. So that's no longer possible to do, but it, it's still a place where you can go and just as you get lost in the physical city of Venice, there's so much art there that you can get completely lost and have this kind of journey of discovery uh, mm. as you go through it. But there's, there's also like a, a, a split format to Venice for, for the director's show. And the director's show is something since the 1970s, which came to be like a centerpiece of the Biennale. But you have the Arsenale and the Giardini. These are two sections that f- form the full Venice Biennale. Where, where are they located when it comes to each other? And why is it split over two kind of territories? for a better word. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think it's because it's certain, the original Biennale took place in what's called the Giardini, which is this garden with all these very attractive looking pavilions that different countries have built. And you could write a, a treatise on just how different architecture reflects national identity in that, in that yes. uh, Giardini. And then at a certain point, they acquired this whole other area, which had been part of a naval shipyard. And the Arsenale was the place where they made rope for the boats, which is why it's a 300-meter-long rectangular building, because ropes would go the 300 meters as they were, um, what do they do? They have to twist them, right? Mm. Um, so, but it's a very, um, it's an industrial space. Uh, it's brick walls. Sometimes there's not great light. There's lots of rusting girders here and there. Um, it's quite rough, whereas in the Giardini, what's now called the, I guess the main pavilion, is a kind of neoclassical gallery. Very clean, classic place to go look at art. So for me, this always seemed like this incredibly schizophrenic character. So mm. part of my idea for the biennial was to have two different shows, but featuring the same artists. But in each place, they would show different kinds of work. So one kind of work got shown in the Arsenale, which could deal with that rough and tumble industrial space. Different kind of work got shown in the Central Pavilion. And the idea was really partly just to show one, that give artists a chance to show two different sides of their work. And of course, for a lot of artists, there are more than two different sides but also to give the public a sense of how expansive an artist's thinking might be. Um, That just because you're looking at a few works doesn't mean you understand what they're approaching. Let's look at something completely different they did in the other space. Mm. And um, this idea of the openness of art, I think, and the openness of artists' thinking is, to me, 
the most exciting thing about, you know, contemporary art. And you had 83 artists in your show and you only had 18 months to mount the show when they gave you the responsibility of curating the director's show. Yeah, you don't. I wish you got more time. I mean, the, the problem is they don't tell you until the previous Biennale has closed. And of course, it's a surprise. I mean, you know, I certainly wasn't expecting this. So I had a very busy... Oh, so you don't apply for it? They, no, they headhunt yeah, you? Yeah, they just call you up. Ah, do people ever turn it down or is it like a thing you don't turn down? It's probably a thing you don't turn down yeah. because you may not get asked again. Got it. Yeah. But, you know, we were about to reopen the Hayward after a period of being closed for two and a half years. I was curating the first show. I had a really busy six months ahead of me when I got the announcement. I knew I wasn't going to be able to do anything for six months or so. So I, I do wish they would let you know sooner. Mm. Uh but, you know, it's funny, I'm surprised even I had 83 artists. But the thing is, you travel all over the world and you see so many things. At a certain point, I wanted to keep the number as low as possible. One of the biennials before me had had 160 artists. And I just thought... Yeah, and I think there was one that had 120 as well. I mean, yeah. it's like, that's almost what I liked about yours was, A, what you said about showing different sides to people's practice. So it's not just one idea of somebody but also the fact it was slightly more focused but even with like i don't know if it's 80 or whatever it is but like it's still so many artists i know it's still it? still too it's many wild. i'll really take my hat off to the biennale curator who only has 30 artists oh my god can you imagine yeah. that's a lot of angry people but also what you did that was for the first time ever which was a huge like breakthrough was that 50 percent of the artists were female female identifying yes in this show which was like historical terrifyingly that it was know, a history, history been, being made is, yeah yeah that is strange and actually the mixing it up show at the hayward is majority female artists mm. and uh, so many of those women artists are 27 or 28 mm -hmm. so it says a great promise for the future of painting in this country absolutely absolutely so after um 15 years at the hayward because you've been there since 2006 um what are the challenges like and the kind of things that you enjoy most like i sometimes sort of feel for museum directors because I, I i being a gallery where we're private we can be very spontaneous to the point where you might only know your next three shows do you have to plan like really far ahead or are you someone a bit like the serpentine maybe where you can be more spontaneous well you know we Ideally, we plan far ahead because um, with big shows, you want to be able to have touring partners, museums in other mm -hmm. countries who will help mm -hmm. pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously with the pandemic, we've all had to improvise and throw out our playbook over and over again. Um, and so this painting show, really, we just started working on it in October of last year. I mean, you know, we had no idea whether we were going to be able to do a catalog. We pulled that together in about the last three Which months. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it can be done. It's slightly hair raising. And of course, this show won't tour, which, mm. you know, in a way is too bad. I'd love to see this show go to another country as an mm. indication of how rich things are in in the painting scene in this country, because I really do think mm. it's one of the top two or three painting scenes in the world. And of course, some of that is down to the fact that so many really wonderful painters from other countries have settled here and decided this is where they want to work. 
Yes. Uh, so there were really artists from Asia, all over Africa, South America, North America, and Europe who are in this show, as well as artists born in this country. Um, and uh, that's something, you know, in these post-Brexit days that I think we really is worth celebrating. Absolutely. One thing, Ralph, before we finish, is that I want to, before we get to our last questions, I just want to talk about how much nature and animals mean to you there's a few things i've been reading about you and there was like a, a book list which you uh, in your quarantine reading list and two of the books out of five was animals what would animals say if we asked them the right questions and That's another book, book beyond words what animals think and feel and obviously you had like for people who don't know you had a, a whole show on trees called among the trees which was 37 artists who were dealing with trees and it feels like mm pets are important to you and nature animals feel like and the natural world feels like it's a huge uh drive for what is kind of pushing you ahead well i've definitely been thinking for a long time about trying to do an exhibition about our relationship with animals oh yeah and you know it's another way obviously of talking about our relationship with the environment because so many species are going extinct and, you know, that strange thing happened in lockdown, too, where lots of people I know started paying attention to the birds that would pop up in their gardens or squirrels or foxes. And uh, we suddenly realized without any planes in the sky, um, there's all this actual animal life that we still live with side by side. Um, but, you know, there's also more and more research about the intelligence of animals, whether they are elephants and their complex family relationships or different types of whales and dolphins. We obviously have a lot to learn from animals. Um, and I think, you know, one of the most depressing things I keep coming across in the news is that young people are really, their response to the climate change bad news is like there's nothing they can do about it. So it's just sort of a, a shrug of their shoulders and they feel it's hopeless. And I think we all emotionally identify with animals or most people do, I think can have that connection. That's why we have so many darn pets. Um, and so maybe that's one way to get people to feel like, Hey, get over that hopelessness attitude. You know, you really, you're responsible for not just your own life, but all these other lives. Um, and, you know, art's just a drop in the ocean in terms of getting messages like that out across. But um, hopefully sometimes you think that drop can maybe create a small ripple effect. Absolutely. Yeah, it's also interesting how many artists do make work in relation to animals not you know outside of just nature or the eco crisis or you know climate change all that stuff but actually in relation to animals specifically i can think of loads of ideas already it's like that would be an amazing show there is a lot of great work even in the painting show there turns out there were quite a number of paintings with images of animals and i wasn't even looking for them. yeah lisa bryce with the black cat That's lisa cool. bryce uh, oh, allison cats yeah. with the monkey yes. and uh, oh, yeah. uh lydia blakely with a cat and a fish. And a dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all animals. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, Lydia Blakely is actually up on the Billboard Commission at the minute on the on the uh, right. Waterloo Bridge. You'll see there's two dogs that have in there. They're like at a dog show being checked, and then round the side there's a salmon tour. Yes. Uh, work. I don't know how much longer that up, but we salmon's a former guest at all. Can't. Oh really? We, love no, yeah. Yeah. we have to get together more often to discuss future. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Future artist selections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so Ralph, we we ask every guest two questions. The first one is if if you could do an art heist and take home any artwork. Um, from anywhere in the world, what artwork would you choose and why? Well, you know, I don't even know the name of it, to tell you the truth. But uh, a long time ago, sort of not that long after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was in St. Petersburg and it was winter, snowing. And I went with a friend to the Hermitage and no one was there, right? Normally it's a nightmare to go to this place. It's the most visited museum in the world. And... uh, as we went in from gallery to gallery, I was actually turning on the lights because the lights weren't on and nobody had turned them on yet. And uh, we came into this one room where there was only light coming in from the window and there was a small Leonardo portrait of a woman. And just seeing this with only daylight on it, it was the most beautiful thing uh, I'd ever seen. Really fantastic. So part of it is the whole experience and the context of encountering that thing. Yeah. But I would, I would steal that one. Nice. Are you, a, are you a collector in general? Do you collect art? You know, I don't collect art one because I probably don't make enough money to. But I do occasionally have had artists give me things when I write about their work or something. So I do have works of art I live with. What do you live with? Can you tell us? Well, I've got. Um, a really lovely f- photograph by Anthony Hernandez. Mm-hmm. I've got um, a Jack Pearson, actually, which is my partner's. And uh, I've got a really nice uh, George Condo, which Ooh. George uh, gave me in lieu of payment for an essay I wrote for him about 20 years ago. And the, <laughs> luckily for me, the publisher ran out of money, so they couldn't pay my fee. Oh, wow. Yeah, so George said, would you accept this? And, uh, of course, I was very happy to. Oh, that's very That's cool. incredible. So the other question we ask everyone is, what is your favorite color? You know, it's a, I have to say blue. Mm-hmm. Oh. Just all the different shades of blue. Um, don't ask me why. Is it a color that makes me happy when I look at it? I don't know if blue makes you happy unless it's a bright blue sky. Mm. But I think, yeah, I think that it's interesting. You know, London, say, on a sunny, bright blue day, God, you feel a hell of a lot better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But where you're located as well on the South Bank, where you've got Waterloo Bridge, there is a lot of sky. I know that your offices are actually in the basement of the building, they so are. you don't really get a lot of it. Yeah. But the, the, when you are at the South Bank or you're on the South Bank or you're crossing Waterloo Bridge, there is a lot of sky there. When it comes to London, you you are not got many towers disrupting that view. No, no, that is a wonderful thing about working there. Yeah, yeah. it's getting that sense of distance from the city and having the river there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to mention the river, but then I realised maybe it's not actually blue. I think Ronnie Horn told us it wasn't blue. So it's green. Yeah. Black. So one more Brucey bonus then. What is the best advice that you have ever been given when it comes to your curating or, or writing? Um, probably don't do too much. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no elaboration, just that's it. Full yeah. stop. Don't do too much. Okay. <laughs> Try and be focused. Just like your Venice was. Yeah. Exactly. Focus. Yeah. Even then, I could have done less. So. Yeah, right, right, right. And actually, Ralph, I just want to quickly say the Bridget Riley show in 2019 was, I think, the best show I've ever seen in my life. And I wasn't going to it expecting it to be that, if that makes sense. I mean, I love her, of course, but I think I thought I knew her. And after seeing that show, I realized I didn't know her work at all. And it was this extraordinary retrospective that was kind of a spiritual experience for me. And I sat for ages in a few of the rooms where you had, like, you know, seating there. And you could literally sit in front of some of the paintings. And it was just... I just still to this day can't get over how amazing that show was. What was that like for you? And what, what is she like to work with? Because she's such a kind of, um, she's almost up there with Kate Bush for me because she's not reclusive at all, but, but she is kind of harder to get to than some other artists in a way. Well, Bridget, I think, is probably the person I know who's thought more about the history and the meaning of painting than any other artist. Mm. Mm. And she's got a laser sharp mind. Um, and very generous person. She's got a foundation. She supports young artists. But I'm glad you had that experience, Robert. I mean, that's when you show a well-known artist like that, that's your ultimate goal is to make mm-hmm. people see them in a different way. Yes. Um, you guys, I'm afraid I've got to run. Yeah, go, go, go. It's yes. been wonderful to spend yeah, this hour with absolutely. you. Thank you so much. Talking to you both. And I, yeah. I hope and- we meet up in person and trade notes sometime. Totally. Yeah, we'd love that. So, yeah, that was Ralph Rugoff, OBE. That was amazing. So, Mixing It Up is on at the Hayward Gallery until the 12th of December 2021. Get down there and you're going to see incredible artists that we spoke about and many, many more. Um, for all the images, go onto the Hayward Gallery website or they have an Instagram. Is that right, Ralph? Yes, they do. And we will also be posting images on our Instagram of many of the artists that we have responded to most from that wonderful show. And we will Absolutely. be back very soon. Well, something we didn't talk about, Rob, I just want to say to you is one of our art heroes is the reason that he got into curating because Mike Kelly told him and got him to curate a show, which we didn't get around to. But when we see him next time or anybody sees him, you should ask him about that. We are going to chat to him about Mike Kelly. And if you want to hear um, other discussions about Mike Kelly, we spoke about yes, him recently, we didn't did. we? And many of the other artists that are in the oh. Mixing Up show are also in the Talk Art Back catalogue. So enjoy. Thanks, everyone. See you next Thanks time. Thanks for listening. Bye. See you soon. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com